This is a McKillop podcast. Welcome to Exploring Curiosity, Resiliency, and Hope, a podcast for times of challenge and transformation. We are excited for your presence as we learn, grow, and evolve from a multitude of voices and wisdom. This is a space for conversations and curiosity, finding ways to be resilient with all that is happening in our personal lives and the world, and maybe finding an embodied hope to live by. We join our host, Trevor, in conversation with Pam Rocker, who really does rock. You know, when I look back at the different moments in my life, you know, sort of flashpoints where it could have gone either way, you know, uh, overall, I really feel like I've had this sense since I was young that there is something out there that's, you know, that I am loved by. And there is a sense that I belong in the world, that there's a reason I'm here. Pam is a writer and speaker, an atypical activist, and as her website, pamrocker.com states, super gay. Pam co-hosts a podcast, Sacred and Profane, Bend the Binaries of Faith, plays the ukulele, is the founder and director of the Coming Out in Faith monologues, as well as founder and director of Affirming Connections, board chair of the Broadview magazine, and named one of Calgary's top 40 under 40 in 2017. Pam seeks to communicate with humanity and humor and to challenge prejudice in non-prescriptive ways. For over a decade, Pam has worked for the full inclusion of two-spirited LGBTQ people in faith communities, organizations, and in society. So I'm very pleased and excited to have Pam Rocker uh, with us today as we continue our journey with resiliency, hope, and curiosity. So welcome, Pam. So great to be here, Trevor. Always great to be in conversation with you. So as we begin today, uh, what would you like uh, folks to know about you who have never met you, don't know who you are, and are curious? Yeah, you know, one of the bylines I use all the time is that I'm a writer, activist, and super gay. And that, <laughs> uh, and that, that sums it up a little bit. I think, um, you know, I think that some of the things that I sort of say who a little bit about who I am is I'm from Texas originally, and now I moved to Canada almost 20 years ago, actually. And so, you know, being in Texas and Alberta is really interesting intersections and less commonalities than you might think. And uh, so holding those two identities and then also as a queer person who, you know, I just celebrated, I think, my 11th anniversary of, you know, coming out to the world. And of course, coming out process is is continual, but sort of the first leg of that journey. Um, and then also being a person of faith and somebody who has, you know, been deeply invested in what faith means, uh, especially because queerness has historically been excluded in any form of expression and, and different types of, you know, gender roles have been enforced within religious institutions. And so I think 
those pieces of my identity, I've had to fight really hard to have those uh, even be at peace with them in, in myself. And then the second piece of it is how do I find peace in that in the world? And how do I practice resistance for both of those things in my life? So, you know, I would say bringing sort of the geography of my lived experience and then also bringing, you know, living in these seemingly two different worlds, but at the same time, the fact that they're two different worlds is an illusion because we all bring all these parts of ourselves to the table and we all, you know, really don't want to be fractured in order to belong in any community. So I think that's good. That's, that's the, that's the short answer. That's a super short answer. So. <laughs> well, what has kept you going through all the twists and turns of your life so far? I mean, what, what is, yeah, what has kept you going? You know, in many ways, the first thing that I think of is I, I'm not sure. I, I'm not. And not in a mysterious way or being obtuse. But, you know, when I look back at the different moments in my life, you know, sort of flashpoints where it could have gone either way, you know. Uh, overall, I really feel like I've had this sense since I was young that there is something out there that's, you know, that I am loved by. And there is a sense that I belong in the world that there's a reason I'm here. There's a reason. And I think amidst all of the superficial things that have happened to me or that people have told you can't belong because you're this, or you can only belong if you leave this part behind. And I include that in terms of the queer community, too, because sometimes to, to be involved in the queer community, there's expectations of you there as well. Um, but for the most part, religion. And I think that, you know, I had this sense of imagination when I was younger, this idea that, you know, there's no way that I couldn't belong. You know, often as kids, we, we can't imagine not belonging other than if we're at the playground and somebody, you know, steals our crackers or whatever, you know we sort of, we, we are always looking for the way that we fit in. And I think um, that little spark sort of kind of kept just a, like a little bit, even you couldn't barely see the little ember, kept going throughout my life. And that spark I would call, you know, I don't, whether we call it God or Jesus or whatever that might be, this sense of divine connection, this sense that you can never be lost, you can only be found. And I think that tapping into that narrative took a long time for me. And sometimes I really just had to kind of act like I believed it, even if I didn't in the moment. And I think that that was a real source of sustenance for me, uh, this idea when the church was telling me lots of different things and, you know, ministers and mega churches were, were you know, drawing lines in the sand and saying you have to be on this side or that side. I think when I finally was able to you know, get out of those communities, I really saw that I still had this like spark of resistance inside me, you know, even if on the outside, it seemed like I was sort of going along. I can look back now and I can see little ways that I practice resistance, sort of like getting ready, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's true for so many of us is that we we're practicing resistance even inside oppressive systems, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that I would say the spark of, uh, of belonging that I think that we're all born with. And that's what's really kept me. And, you know, there's lots of other ways that I can describe it theologically and, you know, physically, emotionally, whatever. 
But I would say that, and, and I don't know how that was sustained over that many years. But I do know that, you know, whenever anybody's tried to take away either of the facets, facets of myself, uh, being queer and being a person of faith, that has really lit a fire in my belly. And I think that, you know, to, to say that I can't have access to these things that are the most meaningful things in my life, I think that has shown me how important it is and how those things have sustained me because those are the things I get really riled up about. So yeah, I would say that that's, that's a start on what I think has sustained me through, um, as we all have been, through the twists and turns of finding out what it means to be a person and, mm -hmm. and how we make meaning and how we find meaning in this mm -hmm. world. Well, have there been times in your journey when you've lost hope or felt hopeless? Mm. And would you be willing to, you know, sh to share? Absolutely. I think here's the dichotomy of, of what I just said, right? <clears throat> there can be a spark underneath everything, but it doesn't mean you always feel it, you know? And I know that there was a point in my journey where I'm in my early 20s working at, you know, evangelical mega church in Canada, um, pretty prestigious reputation, you know, and I get to be involved in that. And, you know, there's a lot of sort of clout that comes within that. And, you know, I was married to a man at the time. And by all accounts, I've got a sweet job, you know, at least I'm heterosexual. Who like, who cares how the marriage is? But, you know, on the outside, checkbox, checkbox, right? And, uh, you know, my family's proud of what I'm doing and, you know, glad of all those things. Um, but on the inside, you know, for the most part, it, it, there was just like complete, uh, it was just nighttime all the time, you know, and, you know, for, for many, many years. And I think I really, I, I see that I, I was really trying to kill something inside of me to, to sort of suffocate it and drown it out because I believed that that was possible. I believed it was possible to sort of get over, if we work hard enough, if we pray hard enough, you know, if we read enough Bible verses and, you know, we do all these things, then we can, we can snuff out a part of ourselves. And, you know, I, and I can say that, you know, as passionate as I am in life now, I was a passionate person then too. And so that sort of passion to, um, to create change was turned inward in a way that was very toxic for me. Yeah. And, you know, when you're in that environment, you are rewarded for continuing to toe the line, right? You're rewarded when you express yourself in a way that is a certain kind of femininity, certain kind of relationship, certain kind of the way that you worship and the way that you talk and, um, and the people you judge. Right. And so, uh, you know, in that time, I would say for quite a few years before and after I came out were the darkest times. But the difference is um, when I really lost hope, um, I just really felt like, OK, and, and, and I don't say this flippantly because a lot of people are in this position and, and, and I feel for whatever reason, I don't know why I'm still here, why, why I still get to be on the planet, I don't know. Um, but in those times, I really thought, okay, either, either I'm going to get over being gay, you know, mm. or 
or somehow I'm going to have to not exist anymore before I accidentally come out. You know what I mean? Like, I really felt like I, I, I don't want to die having had this labeled on me. So I want to make sure, you know, and that's a really strong feeling that we have, especially if we've grown up where there's a huge binary between heaven and hell. And we feel like yeah. we're going to be assigned to one of them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I thought, you know, before I even let myself say any of this out loud, um, I can't exist anymore if that's the path that I'm going to be on. So I'm going to do everything I can in this, you know, passionate spirit I have to get rid of that. And when it started becoming really clear to me that I actually, I couldn't get rid of it, you know, that's where, that's where the, the most hopeless moment was because when you're contemplating what that means, um, even if there's a, a flicker that you might be accepted, you know that you're about to go through a huge journey. You know that when you're telling your parents, when you're telling your job, when you're telling your husband, like you know the journey ahead is, like you can only take it really like one minute at a time. And so there was a moment, and, and that's the moment where I, you know, I got, I was extremely angry at God because I just kind of thought, you did this to me, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Um, if there was any way for me to have gotten out of it, I would have, you know? I I was taking Bible class since I was five, literally. So I, it was just like, there was there was nothing that I felt like, I, I can't, I can't possibly do, have done anything else. Um, and so I really did feel at that moment, like, you know, I felt betrayed. I felt like, you know, here I've dedicated my life to you and um, I've done all of these things. And yet, and yet I still, I still don't get to be included. And, mm-hmm. you know, I can pontificate on that for a long time. But, but what, what I really began to see is like, that was the, those are the voices that I had from the religious community mm-hmm. of, of really saying, this is what God thinks about you. Right. And the more I believed what people said God thought about me, the more hopeless I became. And I I heard this. I'm not a real biblical person. I mean, I'm a (laughs) I I don't quote Bible verses a lot, but I heard the words, my God, my God, why have you effing forsaken me? I don't know. Is that some of the like for you, some of the experience? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, It's, I knew, you know, unfortunately in that moment that the, that I didn't want to give up my faith. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like I talked about being a young person and, and feeling like I belonged. Like, I don't know how to even explain how true that was for me, you know, and outside of my parents' expectations and all that kind of stuff. Now that I've done all the, the work of stripping that away, it's like, no, I really felt like, yeah, like we're connected to this. We get to be connected to this other thing. And, and that helps us remember who we are. And that helps us be in tune with, with our, our calling, our, our voice in the world and all that kind of stuff. And I just thought, you know, really, I, I've been connected to you all this time. But, but now, you know, for some reason, I could not be. And, and it's something that, that I really think that you did to me, you know, and, and, uh, on top of, you know, all of the really extreme feelings I had about, you know, my eternal destination, 
it also just really hurt me, you know, mm-hmm. like um, that I could have you know, dedicated, you know, 25 years of my life to to wanting people to know about this experience, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to to preaching and traveling and, you know, doing all these things in order to share this this opportunity for people to make meaning and that at the end of the day oh i was going to be labeled as one of those people that we used to talk about and pray for yeah right and uh that was a very necessary uh breakdown for me to 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 let go of that theology but that was a point where i just thought then why you know mm-hmm. then then why not have just let me live the life that I wanted to live. If I'm going to go to hell anyway, then let me go to hell happy. You know? Yeah. I mean, did, did it ever become so dark that you were contemplating self-harm or, uh, or like you said, you wanted to disappear? Like, were you even going to go down the conversion therapy route or, or thought of suicide ever? Mm -hmm. I mean, so so you know yes to both so the first thing i'll talk about is the conversion therapy side of it and as many of us know i mean conversion therapy is such a broad term and so you know it it can look like a program or or something that other people enforce in groups and sort of a, a communal experience or a personal counseling experience and that's the most like ubiquitous you know answer to the definition i think the wrote the that I chose was more um, self-conversion therapy, right? And and that happens way more often than people would realize because here you are inside of a religious framework, you have the tools actually to perform it on yourself. You're surrounded with the theology that that is conversion therapy. You're surrounded with um, the idea that we can pray things away and that, you know, if we confess and like you're surrounded with everything you need you've been told you need to do this and so i think for me that was a big process because i felt like you know even the ways that i dealt with being married even the ways that i dealt with having thoughts about women or whatever i was like on it you know like i was like okay you know we're going to uh we're going to change you pam you know like we're we're in this together we're going to do it we're going to be successful right got this project yeah we got this project and uh we're we're it's intense but we're we, we can succeed and uh, so that you know I, tiring it was so tiring because you are constantly you know similarly to being in a program like you always have to like check in and you always have to think about what am i thinking about and are these thoughts okay and is this friendship too much? Is it not? You know, like, what does this all mean? Is this is this thought coming from me or from the devil? You know, and it sounds really extreme now in the life that I lead and the things I believe, but that's just, that is, you know, completely true thoughts I have and that many people are still in those contexts, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that, you know, the everything from that, from the books that I read, you know, and all that was just like, let me heap the evidence upon myself um, to show me how guilty I am or how guilty I would be if I tried to do anything with this. And, you know, and, and that was supremely damaging because it's just like you're trying to perform the surgery on yourself uh, of something that if you take away, 
you know, that's a, that's sinew, you know, you're going to, something's going to fall away and you don't know whether you'll survive that or not. And, um, you know, I never attempted to physically harm myself or, um, you know, never wrote any notes or anything like that. But in my mind, it, I really, and, and I don't, you know, so I don't want to say for anybody who's, you know, listening that whatever their experience is, is, uh, better or worse than anything that I've experienced. Like we just experience our own journey and whatever that means. I would say for me, it was more, I really felt like, um, there was a sense that I did just need to disappear. I didn't, I, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't that I wanted to die. I would just say, I, I can't exist in this body anymore because if mm. this body is going to take me to hell, then I have to get out before then. You know, it's like you're on a train and yeah. you don't, you don't know what's going to happen. And so you just want to, if you're going to go over a cliff, you want to jump out before it goes over. And, you know, for whatever reason, I don't even want to say lucky, you know, because, you know, this is such a, um, a visceral topic for so many folks and, and having worked with people who are conversion therapy survivors, oh my gosh, right? Like it's, it's mm -hmm. torture. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that, that for me, for whatever reason, um, I was able to stay in the, I'm about to jump off, you know, uh, mode and, and not take the, the second step from that. Yeah. Was there something that, that shifted or, uh, I mean, Richard Rohr, it, it, it seems really a weird universe we live in, but you know, somehow there's, there's suffering. There's either it's su like, I don't know how to suffering or come one way or another. And some of it's really, I wish we had a world that didn't, we didn't have to suffer. You didn't have mm -hmm. to suffer like that. Mm -hmm. It would be beautiful. Wouldn't it? You didn't have to, um, but sometimes, Richard, sometimes you have to descend before we can ascend. Mm. Um, so what what shifted for you in that moment of the, your darkness and struggle, rejecting your body, yourself? Uh, yeah. Do you, is there anything that, that in in these past while that you reflected on and 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 it, it sort of keeps you keeps you uh, yeah learn from that I guess. Yeah. You know, the first thing I think of is when I worked at this, you know, mega church, uh, we, I would, I was a producer and so we would produce lots of videos. We had our own video department, right? And we were asked to create this video that was sort of like sneakily trying to get people to sign a petition against gay marriage. So when I worked there, I was there um, for you know, during the same time that gay marriage was was up for um, a vote to become legal federally, which is really interesting. <laughs> yeah. So I remember, um, well, uh, 2005. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Was the on the federal level. But yeah, 95 was um, maybe it was Ontario or another another place. But um, Anyway, so I remember being in the church and this, of course, this is a huge conversation because like marriage is between, you know, like that's just a standard, you know, thing. Um, and I remember we were asked to make a video. Basically, there was going to be a petition for people to sign after the service. And we had to make a video to encourage people to do this without 
saying like, we encourage you to vote against, you know, gay marriage kind of thing. And so of course I'm assigned to this video and I'm like, perfect, uh, <laughs> you know? And this was not the first time that I was assigned to a video that, you know, I'm like writing against myself, right? And so what's really interesting is because I directed the video and wrote it, I had the actress basically be like, you know, we all have to follow our heart. You know, like I just, I just had to make it like as open as possible. And, you know, in my heart, I was like, you know, maybe some people will. And, and it's not even like I agreed with gay marriage at the time, but I just was like, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't bring myself anymore to overtly be against it. And so I remember specifically writing this video and looking at it the Sunday that it came out. And, I'm, and I was thinking, um, wow, Pam, like, you are trying to like fight this from the inside, right? Like I, I would, it wasn't even on purpose. And eventually the thing that actually saved me from continuing to be in that community is one of the things that saved me is I remember thinking to myself that if I was a part of anybody like me who was sitting in that congregation, if I was a part of harming them, and making them feel like they were on that train, like me, and wondering whether they were okay or not, or would be loved. It just really, I couldn't deal with that anymore. And I thought, even if I never come out, even whatever my journey is, I can no longer be a part of a community where I know they're harming people like me. And how can I possibly continue to create content that's specifically for these purposes? And in that way, you know, I'm really grateful that I had sort of the passion for that because it meant that, you know, I could stick up for other people, even if that moment I couldn't stick up for myself because I really did not know if I would ever come out. And so, you know, that, that sense of passion to be sort of protective helped me create a separation between myself and this institution that I'd been a part of for so long. And I think that's when a, a bunch of the shift happened because you know, I think eventually I began to believe that maybe I was worth protecting too. And, you know, and this is, we're talking a year's process, right? Like no coming out stories like, and then I did this, you know, not for me anyway. Um, and then everything was, was great. Or I realized everything about myself, but I think, you know, in that case, it really, it really saved me to think about, you know, little Pam sitting in the audience, you know, or whatever, and, and being devastated by what they're hearing and being in that same struggle. And I thought, no, it, you know what? No matter what happens to me, I, I, can't, I, I can't in good faith, literally, I can't in good faith anymore be a part of, of being antagonistic against this. And I'm really thankful for that because, you know, sometimes we have to do that in order to even realize that, that we're worthy of fighting for too, that, that we can be activists for ourselves too. Mm -hmm. And that sense of justice in that case really helped me out. <laughs> well, it sounds like if I can paraphrase it, it that y you had a moment of creating a boundary, mm. um, a boundary that came from, uh, I earlier talked about this, this, uh, energy of resistance mm -hmm. and, and then a boundary of, 
energy of resistance, but for nonviolence yeah. uh, to other people. And uh, I don't know, what does that sound like to you? Mm. about that uh, you had a boundary i wonder if you've been creating more boundaries healthy boundaries i'm talking about i'm not their boundaries are boundaries but mm -hmm. these boundaries that that create space and life yeah you, yeah that's a really interesting way to put it i've never thought about nonviolence before but i think that's that really resonates you know and it's I think it's an evolution of all of our stories when we move from, you know, sort of the do no harm perspective to the harm prevention perspective. Um, and, and then into how are we proactive in not only preventing people from being harmed, but healing from people from the harm and, and, and breaking down the systems that, that caused so much harm to be in the air anyway and and to possibly land on it so yeah i mean i think that that that's an interesting way to look at it because i do see that um you know that's how that's how my you know uh my queer sort of elders that's what they did for me right um in order for me to, to be get to, get to be in the place and have the voice that i have today and i think you know, for me, it, it did sort of go from, well, at least I, I, I you know, and if I'm not going to come out and, and be this advocate or whatever, or even be able to kiss a girl, you know, I was just like, I could say, okay, I, I can't harm anymore in this way. And then I think the next step was realizing that I was okay to, to also not harm myself. And to also, the next step was, oh, it's also okay for me not to buy into this really harmful theology anymore. And then I think once I experienced those things, you know, automatically, you know, because I think, you know, that I said that I celebrated my 11th year, you know, of, of coming out this past June, I think automatically I was discerning, like, well, what does it mean if I am free and I'm experiencing this? And I was looking back and thinking, you know, I was 27 when I came out, right? And, you know, that journey was so chock full of so many different experiences um, that I couldn't have fast forwarded through. You know, I really, I don't know how I could have. But then I thought, what if, what if I could be a part of shortening that journey for somebody else? What if it was two years less? You know, what if it was four years or whatever? What if we could, what if we could somehow shorten this struggle and, and at least clear the brush away and the path away so that somebody could arrive or, or get to a place of, of self-celebration faster. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and not in order to accelerate around any of the needed work that needs to be done, but to clear out the things that are not necessary. We don't need to go through those struggles in order to find out who we are. We don't need to experience that pain and that anguish and that questions about eternity and our, our ultimate worth. We don't need that in order to have a valid queer journey. You know, none of us need that in order to be valid in whatever our, our identities are. Well, yeah, like, like when you're a child or to be affirmed when you're a child just for who you are without any expectations of who you may become but you're just affirmed as mm -hmm. a child of god in all your diversity 
and uniqueness. Yeah. I mean, that would be a totally different world, wouldn't it? I, you know, I can't imagine, but at the same time, I can, you yeah. know? Um, and I think that that's where, when I think about the different phases that I've gone through in the trajectory of my professional and personal life, it is that sense of imagination that keeps, that I think keeps all of us going, right? Is that, you know, can we imagine, mm -hmm. can we imagine a world that doesn't exist yet in order for us to, you know, have any resilience, hope yeah. and curiosity about what that might mean. Do, do you remember a time when you became curious about yourself instead of wanting to disappear? Mm. I mean, I'm always curious about what's happening inside me. Um, uh, but you know, there are some, there are some, you know, markers in my life that I see. And, you know, this one isn't as dramatic, but I remember thinking, you know, when I first sort of came out and thought about the idea of, you know, being in a relationship with a woman and getting to have intimacy with a woman. And I remember being like, I don't know how to do this. Right. Because I hadn't, uh, I was just wondering, like, do you have a type Pam? Like, you know, I had, I had sort of, you know, repressed it for so long. Um, of course I was like super in love with Anna Green Gables, you know, like from when I was like 10 years old or whatever, I was like, <laughs> yes, I will definitely marry her. So I'm going to have to move to Prince Edward Island immediately and, uh, and look her up. Right. Um, oh, Megan follows. Am I right? Um, so you know, I, it's not like I had, didn't understand attraction or anything like that, but it's really interesting. So if I'm coming out at 27 and just starting to explore relationships with women, I mean, think about when a heterosexual person, you know, you're experiencing crushes that you can talk about when you're 12. Kindergarten. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. People are like, do you have a boyfriend yet? You know, <laughs> people are like, you know, my three-year-old's a hottie. And I'm like, what? Um, but yeah, like you, you're experiencing, you know, your emotions in real time. Mm -hmm. You are getting to, you know, for the most part, be like, I like this person and you're figuring out and you're awkward around them. And you're like, I don't know how to hold hands. I don't know how to talk to them. And you're, you're going through all these rites and rituals. And, and yet my adolescence was an adolescence of repression of those things. And not only of repression of my feelings or my attraction to women, but also the opposite, which was being attracted to men and relationships with them. And so you're holding, like you used the word exhausted earlier. Talk about exhausting, you know? And, and so it's actually kind of funny to me when people think that, that queer folks don't have any willpower and they just think we're going around all the time doing whatever we want. I'm like, uh-uh, we have the most willpower, <laughs> like yeah. to, to hold all of those complexities um, for 27 years. Right. Yeah. And so I think I was really curious about like, okay, now that I'm in, in a, in the space where I can experience relationship, like, what does that even look like? And, you know, what are you attracted to and what are you looking for in this partner? And, and you know, that kind of thing. And, and that took me a while because it was just like, I was, it was like lesbian adolescence. I was like, I don't know. I don't know who you're asked to the dance. Like, I don't even know what to wear. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, when you're still coming into yourself in many ways, then you just think, well, you know, this thing that I've been longing for, this meaningful relationship, um, what can that even look like? And actually, 
Um, and I find that this is a pretty common experience, the, the case that often, because we don't have a different framework other than this pretty binary gender world, um, you know, heteronormativity, we can often tend to say, okay, now I'm with a different somebody of, or now I'm with somebody of the same sex, and, but I'm just going to overlay the same framework as I had before, right? Mm -hmm. Because I was like, mm -hmm. I don't even know what that yep. framework is. I don't know what a different one is. And so um, that was an really, and that just doesn't appear. You don't get a kit, you know, you don't get a kit when you come out. It's like, here's the kit of how to like work all this stuff. Um, actually, I'm like, oh, should I create that kit? No, but you know, I think you have to figure that all out and figure out how to not just like, now I'm going to do a gay relationship straight, you know, um, I'm just going to use all these same traditional things. <clears throat> you have to figure out what's meaningful for me. And that's the same, that's the same path in, in a, a religious experience too. So I, you know, you can still say, well, I'm included, but I'm still going to practice a theology of exclusion. G good thing I'm included though now. Yes. Or you can really sort of, you know, reclaim it and, and reframe it and all of those things and say like, what works for me in this? What was helpful for me in this religious experience? What was life-giving and liberating to me? And then you can incorporate, you don't have to throw it all behind, but you can incorporate that into your way of being and your way of evolving and continuing to be curious about your faith. And the same thing can happen with relationships too. It's like, well, <clears throat> there's stuff from my past relationships with men or even the way I related with my family and you know how I perceived relationships before that are helpful to me, you know, that, that I think are, are um, really beautiful and, and sacred. And that I say, yeah, that actually fits with, with who I am now. And, and able to sort of, you know, um, disentangle myself from the things that, that weren't healthy. And, you know, so building, I think that there's a lot of parallels between romantic relationship and your, and a life of faith of, you know, you're, you're not just throwing everything behind, but you're saying, what's going to help me in this trajectory of this new way and um yeah so to say that i was curious about how all of that is going to look is an understatement um because it was like i was 12 but i was 27. yeah yeah well it's interesting you know uh, i love to say intimacy is into me see mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. like you were saying either with uh, our relationships with people or ourselves, or however you want to define the divine there's yeah. this vulnerability, isn't there? Like, totally. like, like, and that is, we're not taught that. I don't think in w w however we divide ourselves up and our diversity, I don't, I don't think a lot of us are taught how, what does that intimacy feel like and right. taste like and touch or the whole, like the whole gambit of uh, human experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and I think often, you know, when when that that word is understandably scary for a lot of us, because who do we really want to see into us? Well, and as a queer community, you've been not wanted to been seen like there's been a for various parts of history. There's been this huge prejudice, repression, violence. Right. Right. Uh, I mean, to claim intimacy for yourself must have been like, I don't know, was there a magical moment or was there like a, uh, to claim intimacy on any level with yourself or with God again or with another person? Mm -hmm. That's like a lot of courage, at least from my perspective. 
I don't know if you feel that way or what your experience with that is. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, I, I appreciate how you articulated that. I think there's a lot of, of truth in that for me. I think, you know, it's interesting that the first thing that, that I felt when you said like intimacy is I was like, whoo, you know, like, because it is a really vulnerable word, even, even now where like, um, you know, my job is all about being vulnerable and being like, Hey, let's talk about the deepest things in life, you know? Um, but there is still, I, I think for all of us, but I would say from a queer perspective for me, um, you know, like I said, even at the example of, you know, growing up and you just had to pretend you never had crushes on your best friend, you know, and you're like, Ooh, that boy's cute or whatever. And it's just all you do. You do not want to be seen. You know, um, you do not want to seem different at all. And the last thing you want is any attention on anything that's going to out you, you know, even just a little, little bit. And so that sense of intimacy is actually, it's not only like feels vulnerable, but it's dangerous. It's dangerous. And so I think we become familiar with not being seen and that this not being seen is safe. It's a safe place for us and and safe and familiar right and it takes a long time i know for me it took a long time to be like you know to, to think okay not only do i deserve intimacy but it can be safe you know um because you know there's always this feeling of if somebody sees me too much if they see into me too much they're gonna find something they don't like. And I mean, that's universal in our relationships. Yeah, you know, we feel that all the time. Look at any, you know, romantic comedy. But I think, you know, it was accentuated in my life from the queerness perspective to say like, there's a point at which I will re be rejected and you just expect it, right? And you're just like, okay, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go back into, you know, whatever. Um, and so that's, that's a ongoing practice because I mean, our culture, you know, lives in that sense, right? You, you're, you know, one step off the edge and, and everyone's going to, you know, exile you, right? And I think that for me, it was this idea that no matter what happens externally, I deserve intimacy. Um, I deserve to be seen and known and known fully in the fullness of myself and the light and the shadow of myself. And even if it's not humanly possible for in, in some ways that, you know, uh, I think, what is it uh, in First Corinthians 13, you know, at the end of it, it says like, we will be fully known by mm -hmm. God just as, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and, and that we will finally be filled up with, with God themselves, right? Yeah. And I think that I think about that, right? The, the, that sometimes what we're doing on earth is recreating that sense of being fully known and practicing that with each other because we, we at the deepest part of ourselves, we know what it feels like to feel fully known. And we're trying to get there yeah. with each other. And we're trying to not make it scary for each other. And we're trying to be good at, at accepting what people show us and, and seeing that as a gift. And you know, for me, it's a, co a continual invitation to pay that sense forward, right? And to know that it doesn't stop at me being seen, 
but who do I need to see? And, and what stories am I missing? What stories are, you know, do I consider not important that I need to? Mm -hmm. So the, yeah, that word is a big one. That word yeah. is a big one. And, and even when we're talking about, you know, physical intimacy, you know, that's huge for the queer community because like, okay, you know, people are like, <clears throat> okay, you know, when we're starting to get rights and everything, people say, okay, fine, you know, have rights. But we, want, we don't want to know what that means. Like, well, let's not see it, you know. Um, and I, I remember one time, years ago, I was in my, in my parents' living room and my nieces and nephews were watching TV and a commercial came on the TV of some movie and these two guys kissed. That's it. They just kissed on, you know, one flash on the screen. That's it. And I tell you what, my mom jumped out of, out of her chair faster than I've ever seen her jump in my entire life, literally leaped across the living room to cover up the TV with her body, like her whole body. <laughs> and I was just, I just sat there and I thought, wow. And this was after I'd come out. And I just thought, wow, she's so scared. She's so scared of this physical intimacy between two people. And, and, I, and I just said, Mom, what are you doing? And she was like, well, we don't need to see that. And I, and I just said, Mom, you know that's me, right? And, you know, she just couldn't, even though I was sitting in the same living room, she's just like, her reaction and the reaction she's been taught is like, oh, my gosh, there's this evil. I'm going to put myself between this and these young eyes, right? And so if we translate even that feeling at one you know, one frame of uh, a movie to the sense that, you know, so how do queer people feel about getting to experience pleasure? <laughs> you know what I mean? If mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. the kind of thing. Yeah. And, and that's when you hear a lot from folks that say, like, I, I feel bad when I experience pleasure. And often I say we are taught, I was taught, many of us were taught that that holiness equals shame. Mm -hmm. That if I'm not feeling shame, it's not a holy experience. And uh, because of our queerness, like, so if we're not feeling bad about it, then it's not holy enough yet. And I've experienced that with people coming to affirming churches, right? They come and they think, wow, I, I feel accepted here. I feel like I belong. I feel like I, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this. And it's so unfamiliar to them that they almost, they cannot believe that it's legitimate, right? They say, it's kind of like, you know, you, you don't want to be too accepted into a club that would accept you. It's like that, right? Mm -hmm. That like, if I can actually be fully myself here, can this be a holy experience? Yeah. And, and how sad is that to, you know, that, that that's the structures that we built, right? So I know when I went on a little tangent or whatever, but I think, the whole idea of intimacy and physical intimacy is, you know, this is something that that it'll, it's going to take some generations for us to to move past and actually see more representation of just in pop culture, what do relationships look like? That it's not weird or like, oh, my gosh, when we see uh, queer folks kissing or whatever, that it becomes just as boring as me having to watch straight people kiss all the time. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that it just is yeah. a thing. And and that's it. Yeah. And probably there's going to have to be a healing around uh, intimacy and physical intimacy with um, the heterosexual community, mm. too. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it, 
it, all our healing goes together. Yeah. <laughs> For you know, it, because I I think there's a shame there too, to be honest. Uh, For sure. Around the whole thing. And that's a good point. I mean, yeah, for for sure. I mean, I'll, just really quickly, I remember having a conversation with um, a group of people, and we were doing exercises around gender roles and what roles have rewarded us most for conforming, and you know, all that kind of stuff. And it was really interesting. And I remember this guy um, who identified as cisgender, as straight, and he said, you know, he basically like at the end of the exercise, he said. I, I, you know, basically I, I never thought that this workshop or, you know, I was kind of going along with it, but I never thought that it would apply to me as in the ways that I don't feel liberated and how I express myself. And he just kind of said like, kind of quietly, like, I've always wanted to paint my nails, you know? And mm. it was like, it was in that moment that it, it really struck me, this really simple thing that he wanted to do. He didn't feel like he had access to it because all of a sudden it meant all these other things. And that you know our collective liberation exactly what you said is what's at stake because i want that person to be able to express themselves in whatever way they want and however quote unquote normative they might seem on the surface they still get to experience to wear the clothes that feel good for them and have the experiences that feel good for them and so you're right i mean shame the idea of shame around sex and physical intimacy and relationships does not only apply to queer folks because we have had really harmful narratives around all kinds of sexual relationships um, for a long, long time, which just, it hurts all of us. And and yet the healing is, the healing helps all of us too. Yeah. I don't, like, I'm a, a, a cis, white, straight guy, and I don't like to use the word straight anymore mm. as a category, because I feel like it's really about a straight jacket. Mm. Uh, in, in a way, um, uh, heterosexual people have been put in a straight jacket straight jacket in their relationships as they've mm. put uh, queer people in a vice grip right. or, or a repression and I think I agree with you there's this co-liberation yeah. um, that needs to happen yeah. for us all to find wholeness As we've been talking and I've been hearing your story, I've been reminded of a quote um, from Howard Thurman, who is a, a mystical African-American that actually was a mentor, Martin Luther King Jr. Mm. And uh, you talked about this, um, uh, I don't know if you call it the voice of resistance or the energy of resistance, but he, he has this metaphor. There is something in every one of you that waits, listens for the genuine in yourself. And if you cannot hear the sound of the genuine in you, you will all your life spend your days on the ends of strings that someone else's someone else pulls. Wow. It reminds me of your journey, maybe all of our journeys, is that this liberation from the strings and listening to the sound of the genuine. You talk about the resistance. Yeah. But it sounds similar to me. Yeah. I love the idea of you know, it's kind of being pulled by, you know, literally disentangling ourselves from that. And, um, I mean, are there, yeah. yeah. Are there, are there spiritual practices or that you, 
that you developed as you entangled the strings from your life or are there some that you had to let go of that weren't helpful? Mm -hmm. The first thing I think of is, you know, I mentioned this a little bit before, the idea that sometimes we will take our theology to a certain point in order for us to be included. And then we sort of are like, well, we've got that, you know, now let's move on to the next thing. And we're, we're not really looking back to see like who else is behind. Um, and I think I had to get through that because I had fought so hard for, for so long in, you know, silent and, uh, you know, overt ways to feel like I was included in, in the narrative of, of Jesus and the narrative of, you know, for me, uh, Christianity. And so I think it took me a while to really get the idea that my liberation could never stop with me. That I, that I could no longer still put this same framework on other people. Um, just because I was experiencing some comfort now, it doesn't mean that other people were, were also experiencing the same comfort. And I think I was really challenged, especially the first few years of coming out and still practicing my faith and figuring out what that looked like and all of that kind of stuff to really have to like extricate this idea from myself that I could decide whether people were worthy or not, because that was the environment that I was in. And that actually feels powerful and that feels safe. If we feel we know the rules and if we feel we know all of these things, it feels pretty safe and pretty good to say like, I know who's in or who's out. I know if I'm in or out. And that's how we learn to see the world. We're just looking through two different lenses and we categorize people like that. I remember at the church that I worked at, sometimes people would call them Christians and pre-Christians, right? <laughs> pre-Christians, okay. Uh, oof, it doesn't even sound good saying out loud. Um, so, you know, this idea that um, we could still enforce this really narrow definition of right and wrong. Like I, I still had that, right? And I still found myself, you know, afraid of different ways that people believed because that's what was familiar to me. And I also lost this sense of security um, because I, was, I lost the illusion that I could know whether somebody was worthy or not or that I could even think that somebody could ever be unworthy. And that, that was the real work, you know? And, and, I, and I say this really openly because I think, I don't know what I would think about gay people if I wasn't gay, because I was so deeply entrenched into this culture. And I had this fervor, right? Which hopefully I'm using for good now, mm. <clears throat> excuse me. And, you know, and, and I use that fervor a lot in ways that were not helpful and that were harmful. And so I think for me, I had to really let go of this, this practice and this idea that it was helpful in any way for me to try to figure out whether somebody was included or not. Mm. And instead, take that whole entire thing and flip it on its head, you know, and, and we've, we might have heard of like the three B's of like a faith community where you say, you know, you have to, some people, you know, usually most churches, you have to come in and you have to behave. So first thing, behave how you need to. Second thing, believe. Okay, believe what we believe and buy into it. And then the third thing is you can belong. 
So you have this trajectory and at, at no time can you go backwards. You gotta believe and you got you gotta behave and then you get to belong. It's, it's a tree at the end, right? And, and it's precarious, it can go away at any time. And so that's how I work, you know, that's, that's how I operated my life for so long. And then to completely flip that on its head and to actually just say, the first B is belong. The second B is belong. And the third B is belong. And of course we want to love each other. Of course we want to lean into more of who we are and, and into who we should be in the world and mm -hmm, all of those mm -hmm. things. But that this idea of belonging isn't precarious, that we're already there, you know? And, you know, I think about this, it's like the life of Jesus was about getting rid of those, those illusions that, um, that somehow the people who we've been taught to leave out, that we even have the option of doing that, right? Yeah. That we're playing God all the time about what we think is gonna happen to, to folks, whether on earth or, or after. And that was a process for me, I tell you what. That was, uh, and I try to be really honest about that because just because you come out, just because you have reframed things for yourself, it does not mean that you're automatically an ally to the other letters in your rainbow umbrella. <laughs> and it does not mean that all of a sudden your theology is expansive, right? So, you know, I've, I've had to challenge a lot of other queer folks in their theology because they'll say, you know, I, I, you know, I can accept this and this, but not this. And I say, okay, but wasn't that same ideology used on us? And let's explore that, right? And it doesn't mean that we don't inherently think that things that are harmful and, you know, we obviously there's still a lot of things that are empirically wrong, but in terms of who somebody is, I don't get to decide that anymore. And what a relief that is. Once I move beyond being fearful of what that could mean, it was such a relief because I don't have to decide anything. All that I have to decide is what does love look like for me? Mm. And, and how do I be a part of the process of translating that love into the action that, that needs to happen in the world? And then it's a huge way off because guess what? When you meet people who are different from you, you're not afraid. When you meet people who don't believe the exact same things as you, you don't feel compelled to change their mind. Um, and you can approach each other in a completely different way because I, I, I feel no compulsion to reorient them into my way of being. And I'm really actually thankful. I feel like for me, it's been such a gift to be gay because I can see my journey completely turning out differently if I didn't have such a real thing that I had to face and I could, I could not ignore to say, Pam, who do you think belongs? Mm. And, and now that you know you do, and now that you know everyone does, what does your work look like? What, does your, what do you use your voice for now? And that's not to say, you know, I feel like, you know, that, you know, God made me gay to suffer through all these things. At the same time, I'm so grateful for it because I wouldn't be having this conversation with you right now. I would not have, you know, I would not have an expansive journey in the ways that I would have found security um, would have been probably very unhealthy. So to me, when I look back, I think, I honestly think, thank God I'm gay, right? Literally, because I don't know what it would have taken for me 
to get to this point if I hadn't had to really struggle with that sense of belonging and who deserves it or not. And I really had to be, that had to be broken down for me in order for me to pay it forward. Um, because those belief systems are so entrenched and no matter how liberated we are on the outside, we gotta get that stuff out of our bones, right? Mm -hmm. um, in order to truly be transformed and be ready to be a transformation in the world. That's beautiful. Thank you. That's really beautiful. It leaves me speechless. I have this theory, it sort of fits with what you just shared, is that um, hope is embodied. Mm. Uh, it's, 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 it can be an idea or an imagination. I think it's all those things. But if you, if you, um, to, to, to feel belonging is really something to feel it in your body is really transformative. Mm -hmm. Like as like we're embodied people. So if, I don't know if you want to try this experiment with me, but if you listen to your body right now, what would it tell you about hope right in this moment? Are mm -hmm. there, is there a word or an image or an action or music or vibration? What, what would your body share with you in this moment around hope and belonging? Mm. I think what it feels like is a sense of both being untethered and completely grounded at the same time. And it means, you know, for me, how I picture that is, you know, being able to sort of float above what's happening in the moment and see what's possible. And yeah, also being grounded in the current moment and seeing what we need to do to get to what's possible. And I think that that is, those are the two sides of hope. And when I think about what it feels like to think about belonging, I think it's a sense of exhale, you know? <sighs> uh, yeah, that it's no longer this, you know, mental, emotional, physical, spiritual gymnastics that we have to prove or disprove or apologize or outrun or whatever, it's just an exhale um, of all of that we've been holding in, afraid that the answer is gonna be, no, you can't have this. And that feels, um, it, it's not comforting in the sense of rest, it's comforting in the sense of sustaining because we know that so many voices tell us that we do need that behaving and believing in order to have it. And I think the sense of exhale is saying we blow out that those rules. And, and in doing so, maybe other people will hear that exhale as well and be able to see, oh, that's what it feels like. You know, um, and we need that. 
we really do need that. The image I have as you talk is that that's like a living prayer. Mm. Yeah. And I will add, often I forget to like really know that I'm breathing, <laughs> you know, I know that my body's, you know, helping me along with it. Um, but honestly, sometimes only in church in a quiet moment, I will, you know, during, after the centering prayer or something will happen and it's just silent. And I like feel my chest and I think, oh, and then in this moment, I just like, I can breathe out and I'm not, I'm not kidding. So it's really like once a week at most. <laughs> and now it's harder cause we're all on zoom. So you know, it's harder to have that, but you know, how interesting is it? And I just thought of it in this moment that I experienced that exhale and that one moment in time that is sacred. And speaking of things that could change the world, what if when we were in these sacred places, that this is the most that we would feel like we belong, that we could exhale and do it in a collective way to recenter ourselves for the work that's ahead. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to connect with our bodies in a way that doesn't hold any shame. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a beautiful way of putting it too, Trevor. Yeah. You're a musician. I mean, you're multi-talented. Do you have a, a, a song of yours that you'd like to share today? I definitely do. So this song is called Gay Lake of Fire. And it was actually inspired by some of the things that we've been talking about today in terms of the messaging that we've received. And one of the things that I've really realized over time is that no matter whether we've been in a religious you know community or not and whatever that's experienced been is that we have this all of us have an idea of hell right in our popular culture and you know we have an idea of you know the devil with the red horns and all that kind of stuff and we we hear a lot like that, that this is the worst thing right it's like go to hell is like the you know the worst thing and and so when we have seen and heard this as being against us as queer folks, I mean, that's, that's actually, you know, the biggest tool that, you know, the, the religious forces that, you know, want us to feel ashamed of who we are have, has used. Because how many of us would say, you know, I would like to have, you know, 80 years of being myself, but an eternity punished, right? And so when I was sort of thinking about this and, and starting to write music again, uh, it came to my mind right away that, you know, I wanted to reframe this idea that, it, you know, if if we are going to hell, what would that look like? And so um, uh, this is to the tune of Ring of Fire by June and June Carter Cash and Johnny Cash. And so this is just kind of a fun reframing of this of this whole idea. So I'm happy to share a little bit of it with you today. And, um, you know, hopefully we can reframe some of this together. So here it is. Where I will burn for eternity. 
lovely it's prophetic thank, thank you, you. yeah thank you for sharing it uh, i have uh we're trying something new in the podcast we want to ask really f five quick questions yeah. just off the top of your off the top of your head uh to end end the podcast as we're coming to the end um the first question is is there a book that's impacted your life uh, and that you'd like others to know about? Yeah, I would say it's Traveling Mercies by Anne Lamott. And it's sort of her first memoir about her life. Um, you know, basically coming out of being an alcoholic and finding faith, but also um, still being completely herself and completely flawed and um, completely anti a bunch of religious stuff. And, you know, it's hilarious. And, and, I, and I tell you, she's not queer, but the thing that really changed my life about that book is, first of all, she swore. She was, she, she, there's a lot of swearing in the book. And that was the first time I was like, oh my gosh, Christians swear? <laughs> this is great news. And the second one is that, you know, I really realized through the political stuff that she shared in that book um, that God wasn't a Republican <laughs> um, because I was sort of shown that, that God had a political affiliation when I was growing up and this idea that um, that God isn't connected to politics in that way. Uh, I know it sounds ridiculous that I would have thought that, but then I mean, that's the truth. So Traveling Mercies by Anne Lamott, that changed my life. Is there a place in nature that you go to that brings you hope and resiliency? Mm. I would say anything that's around the ocean. I love smelling the ocean air. I love the soothing sound of the waves. Um, I love that there's not a huge hike involved. <laughs> so yeah, that's my answer. Is there a piece of music that you're listening to these days that really helps you? Wow. 
You know, these days I'm listening to a lot of frivolous music. Um, but one, one thing in particular is a song by the artist Love, L-A-U-V. And it's called For Now. And it talks about when we're apart, you know, the things that we can do when we're apart, but it's really that we can't wait to get back together in person. And that resonates with me for a lot of reasons right now. After we're done this podcast, what are you curious about these days? Mm. On a deep level, I'm curious about what does my work and life need to look like from 2020 forward? And how can I approach that with a sense of hope instead of dread or just wanting to fast forward till things are quote unquote better? And what does that look like for me? And there's probably a lot of ideas that I need to lay down in order to move forward with what needs to happen. Is there a movie or documentary that you'd recommend for people to watch right now? Mm. Hmm. One that I'm thinking of is there's a story about, I, I'm blanking on the name, but I think it, it might be called um, Same Love or something like that. And it's about two older ladies who, you know, have been together for like 50 years or something. And their story about, you know, what it looked like to be together from, you know, the 50s until now kind of thing. And it's just really phenomenal to me, the power of love through all of the different changes in politics and not being understood and having to hide pieces of yourself and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, intergenerationally, us having a better understanding of what it means for the people who've gone before us who, who had to do those sorts of things and gratitude of how far we've come. I think it really reminded me and grounded me in those ways. And finally, so far today, what, where have you noticed gratitude? Mm. You know, I think, I, I think about two things that you shared and, and I'm grateful for. So, you know, you talked about the, the sense of nonviolence and in the work that we do and the ability we, we have to practice nonviolence, even when we're on the journey to figuring out who we are, that we can still do that. And, you know, I, I think just grateful to have these, uh, these conversations. It's to be able to be vulnerable with people who are miles away and to have these little moments in time where you can share pieces about yourself that often you forget exist. And I think often look back and say, wow, I have made it through these things. And that gives some perspective on, you know, coming back to the first thing of like, what does it look like from here on out? And feeling like, you know, I've made it through these other things and I figured it out and I'm not alone. And we're in this together. But is there anything you want to say that you didn't get a chance to say? Yes. 
I would say that these days it's really important for me to talk about queer joy as well because we talk about our challenges a lot and the things that we have faced and do face now and all the progress we need to make. And those things are valid. And at the same time, there's such a joy that comes with being a queer person in the world. There's such a joy that comes from having a unique perspective and uh, having empathy because of what we've gone through and having imagination because of what we've had to get through. And I am just so thankful for that too. Um, I, I'm not thankful for the struggle, but I see the joy that can come from it. And some of the most joyful people I know have been through the most stuff. And that is so inspiring to me that we don't have to be irreparably changed by our suffering, but that we can, we can move forward and become vehicles of healing. And how joyful is that? And so queer joy, I'm trying to focus on more these days as well. Well, I'm very grateful for your time and vulnerability and being willing to share your story and your wisdom and experience uh, to all of us. So thank you. Thank you very much. I can't wait to hear all the conversations that you have in the future because these are great questions and I think really lead into, you know, getting to the heart of what, a lot of things that we all are curious about in our lives. And so I look forward to the, all the other voices that you have on here as well. Thanks for including me. You're very welcome. What sparked your curiosity in this episode? Do you sense a resiliency that was hidden before? From the conversation, where is hope leading you? If you are enjoying this podcast, please subscribe, consider rating it, and sharing it with family and friends. This podcast is produced by McKillop United Church. Thank you for joining us, and thank you for the generosity of all of our donors. If you want to support this podcast, go to patreon.com or mckillopunited.ca slash donate. Peace and blessings to you.